thank you, Abby, and thank you, Francis, or I like to call you Frankie, um, and she likes me to call that too. Uh, I'm so encouraged by uh, your story, Francis, and your courage uh, to follow where the Lord is leading and just to do what you're doing in another culture, and I think the gospel compels us to do that. Um, um, yeah, it's, it's been a... a, a it's, I know it's um, been unfortunate, the circumstances, but it is really nice to have you with us too. I'm, I'm grateful to have you. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name's Ollie, and uh, I'm really excited to be opening the Word of God with you tonight. Um, but to start with, I need your help with a diagnosis. If I was to tell you guys that uh, I've got this aching uh, pain in my arm, and it's kind of moving over to my chest, uh, what might be the diagnosis? Or if I'm uh, telling you I'm a bit light of breath and uh, feeling a bit lightheaded and, and a bit nauseous, what would be my diagnosis? Any medical professionals tell me? Heart, heart attack? You reckon? Could be. Uh, yeah, it could, could just be a... Uh, it could just be from an injury, from an overzealous uh, bowling in a pastor's cricket game a couple of years ago. I think me or some... What? He's not here. That's right. Um, maybe what I need is just a massage, a good rub in my arm. Maybe my lightheadedness is just tiredness. I just need to sit down. It'll eventually go away. Once summer comes, it'll just disappear. I can just see every uh, a medical professional kind of seething in their chairs right now. If they were my symptoms, I'd be having a heart attack and desperately needing heart surgery. But me and Dr. Google, we'd rather just apply external remedies, failing to diagnose how sick I am internally. You see, this is what we fail to see about sin. We see sin as an external issue and fail to diagnose what's wrong with our hearts. And when we see ourselves this way, what we end up doing is just slapping on external cures for what is deeply an internal issue. And I think this is why many of us feel cold in our faith right now. Because when we fail to see how sick we are, we don't appreciate or care much for what Jesus did to heal us. When we misdiagnose our nature, we become content with dressing up the externals without ever addressing what's fundamentally crooked in our hearts. And so the Apostle Paul, as we've been studying in Romans, has made it clear up to this point that the gospel is for every soul, both the religious Jew and the pagan. And as we're going to be digging deeper into this book, Paul will continue to dissect the human heart and lay out clearly how it is that we find salvation. So my prayer for us as we sit in this part of God's word is that through the power of Christ, we might experience his deep transformation from the inside that he would move each of us to a place of repentance, recognizing sin's power in our, in our lives, to knowing Christ's greater power and restoration through the gospel. And this is so foundational for our faith, and I sense that we need to grasp this more deeply in our souls in order to come to a place of deeper joy and deeper love and deeper peace and a deeper holiness. And so I invite you... Uh, have your Bibles open to Romans 3, and let's dig into this passage. It's part of God's Word. Uh, and let me pray as we come to it. Holy God, we praise you and we worship you. We say hallelujah. 
that you would set us free, that you would come and that you would love us. And uh, Lord, thank you that you would speak to us. And we, we ask, Lord, as we open your word, that you would, uh, you would speak, that you would uh, give us soft hearts to listen. Lord, would you expose and would you reveal the parts of us that, are, um, that we're holding back and that would you bring your great transformation to us Come and speak, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A French Enlightenment thinker, Rousseau, unlike the other thinkers of his time, he came up with this thought. This is about 200, 300 years ago. He said, humans are inherently good. Good natured. And it's society that stuffs humans up. So given the right external environment, humans would be okay. And this thinking has become so central to Western thought and it's the logic behind how we think today. Humans are good. Our desires are, are good. To deny your nature is wicked. Truth is inside you. And it's external influences and institutions like religion and, and governments that mess up our thinking. It's positive psychology, right? People are good. It's why we hate the idea of God's wrath or God's judgment because humans are mostly good. We'd much rather soothe our consciences with love wins. God would never be so angry with us. See, what we've done is we've, we've flipped the script. We as righteous humans sit on the judgment seat and the idea of God and his moral purity and his wrath, we put that on trial, we find it guilty. God is unjust. And so when Paul comes along and he lays it out in Romans, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people, including, as we saw last week, chapter 2, verse 3, the religious Jews says, Do you think you will escape God's judgment? Can you hear the naysayers? God is unjust. Anyone ever have internal debates in your head? Well, Paul seems to do this here, entering into this internal dialogue with the potential objectors, and God's wrath is on trial. If humans are by nature good, then in self-righteousness, sitting on our judgment seat, we're going to question God and question His judgment. How is it that God can be morally pure or just in bringing His wrath upon everyone? So the question we're asking. So come with me, chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? In other words, if everyone is under God's wrath, what's the point of the law? What's the point of the Jewish thing? And Paul's answer, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. But then you hear the naysayers say, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? You know, if Israel failed, then will God's words just prove empty? And Paul's answer, not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. So Paul flips that script back over. He says, God is in the judgment seat, not us. 
But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness, more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? In other words, God is a hypocrite to judge us. If our unrighteousness actually makes him look better. Paul says, he says, I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? He says it's a circular argument that makes humans the judge and God accountable to us. So Paul concludes, someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned a sinner? So what's going on? We shift the blame. We think we're good and God is unfair. And so Paul does this double negative, exposing the foolishness of this argument. He says, Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Really? Is this what we think God is like? Paul says, if people think this way, and if that's where their logic takes them, they say they deserve what they get. Their condemnation is just. You see, the reality is, This will start to become our reasoning too if we're looking at the externals, not the internals. If we're looking at what's on the outside, our behaviors, our actions, our decisions, then we won't be able to accept God's judgment. We do that weighing thing, right, where we say we've done enough good versus our bad. Or we play the comparison game, you know, we say, oh, I'm not Hitler, and so Paul's Jewish readers would be tempted to think this way as they're, as they're seeing this and, and Paul's talking about God's wrath. They're thinking, I'm a good Jew. I keep the law. I do the Sabbath. I know the Torah. And you tell me I'm under God's wrath? So look at the externals. And we, look at this, we, we play, apply the same logic today. We say, I'm a nice person. I recycle. I pay my taxes. I didn't cheat on my test. I visited my parents. I have a keep cup. I didn't watch Game of Thrones. You see, when we look at externals, of course God's wrath is unacceptable. God's wrath is unjust. You know, I'll never forget the anger of my friend, the spite, when he asked me if I thought that his buddy who had died at a young age, a nice guy, a volunteer on the football team, a school prefect, he asked if he's not a Christian, are you saying he would be in hell? Just his anger at that question. God's wrath is unjust. So we tell ourselves. But here's the problem. Like me thinking that when I was having a heart attack, metaphorically, we're looking at the outside, whereas God looks at the inside. Human nature is not inherently pure. As we'll see later in Romans' letter, our, our nature is fallen. We, we're, we're, uh, our, our sin, it's like our very state of being is, is, is fallen. God looks at our hearts. So Paul's already quoted from Psalm 51, King David's inspired confession. He says, surely I was sinful from birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Or take uh, Jesus' own words in Matthew 15. He says, Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? 
But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands, externals, does not defile them. We're not that good. Our hearts are sick. We'll take the letter to the Ephesians. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects, by nature deserving of wrath. God looks at the inside, at our hearts. And without God, we are by nature spiritually dead in our sins and deserving of His wrath. So what happens when we, like my, my bad diagnosis, we just look at the externals without going to the insides? What, what are the consequences? What happens when we have this high view of ourselves? We buy into that cultural script that we are good. Let me tell you, complacency happens. When we think we're okay and we buy into this cultural humanist script, God's wrath becomes something that we just can't swallow and so we remove it from our thinking and we we cozy up with these sentimentalities like love wins and and rest in peace. And as as we toss out God's judgment and God's wrath, what we do is we throw out with it any sense of urgency to apply the gospel to our insights, to our hearts. We throw out with it any sense of urgency to actually share the good news. When our standards are by what's on the outside, what happens next is then we compare with ourselves with others. You, you know, I'm, I'm, at least I'm not as bad as that person. And more often our comparison moves to judgmentalism and and we get cozier and cozier and cozier up on our high horse. But I think the greatest danger of minimizing or self-justifying away God's righteous judgment, you know, the danger that I see in my own life and the danger that I see happening in the church is then a complacency over sin. You know, we don't care too much how greedy we've become. We're not too fussed about a bit of gossip. In our hearts, we're wishing others harm. We put up with scrolling and binging and fantasizing and lusting. We happily build our little kingdoms here on earth and ask God to bless our comfort. And we expect others to love and be there for us, but rarely prioritize them. I was reading uh, in the book of Joshua this week and um, this, uh, this story that came through just has been niggling at me as I've been thinking about it and I want to share this with you. Uh, God is leading the people of Israel into the promised land and amazingly he conquers the powerful, wicked uh, nation of Jericho and its mighty walls with a blow of the trumpet. God commanded the Israelites to destroy everything lest their hearts turn to idolatry. But next, Israel is confronted with uh, another nation, the nation I. 
But this time, this time they suffer a crushing defeat. And so Joshua falls down on his face before God. And he's like, why? Like, you've brought us out of Egypt. You've been, you know, we're doing all this conquering. You've promised us. You've made a covenant with us. And now we're just, we're defeated. But God responds. He says, stand up. He says, Israel has sinned and violated my covenant. See, it turned out that one of the men, Achan, had lusted after the bounty of Jericho. And he'd taken some and he'd hidden it in his tent. It was this seemingly small sin that was standing in the way of God's deliverance. You know, I needed to be confronted with God's holiness, and I think we do, we all need to, and ask humbly of ourselves, is there a sin that we're just hiding away that might actually be preventing us from experiencing God's deliverance and God's breakthrough? When our diagnosis is external, when we think we're okay and happily coast in our respectable sins, we become blind to God's righteous anger. And what follows complacency is blandness. Like a nice beige curtain or a Windows 95 desktop. Anyone remembers them? Our love for Jesus and the gospel just becomes bland. When we don't care much for sin, and when we think of ourselves highly and we diminish God's judgment, what results is we get a little care for God's love to pay for our sins on the cross through Jesus. See, what Jesus came to do was not to affirm us in our own self-love, but he came to bring deep transformation into the people who he created us to be. And for him to do that, we need to remove the veil over our true state. We need open heart surgery. We need a heart transplant. And this is where Paul's argument leads. God's wrath and God's love and God's salvation for us is best understood in light of our sinful nature. So like most, most surgeries, this will be a bit painful for us to read. Open heart surgery. Come with me to to verse 9 in the passage. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Such a different framework to how we often think about sin. We often think about sin as individual transgressions, things we do. Rarely do we actually come to see it as this oppressive power in our lives. Sin is not something external or something we do. It's our very state of being. Uh, Theologians like to call this total depravity. J.I. Packer explains it this way. It declares that no part of us is untouched by sin. And therefore, no action of ours is as good as it should be. And consequently, nothing in us or about us ever appears meritorious in God's eyes. We cannot earn God's favor, no matter what we do. Unless grace saves us, we are lost. Total depravity entails total inability. That is the state of not having it in oneself to respond to God and His Word in a sincere and wholehearted way. 
In other words, we are much sicker than we, are, than we realize. We are absolutely unable to cure ourselves. And this is so offensive to modern ears. But we can pretty up a corpse as much as we like, but it's still going to stink. And it's still going to be dead. What the gospel offers is true of reality and the only path to true flourishing. And I don't want to get up here and preach to you how bad you are. I'm, I'm putting myself under this too. And what I'm saying is we need to take our lives, take our hearts, and we need to put it against God's word. And not by what culture is saying about what we're like. And again, I want to stress that we're not going to appreciate how good God's love is and how great is his saving work until we appreciate fully how bad our nature truly is. We so quickly, we just focus on what's the, on the outside of behavior, whereas Christ wants to do this internal work, an internal resurrection and transformation. So it needs to be painful as we dig down to the core of our sinfulness. So as we continue in this passage, Paul uh, backs up his claim with Scripture and, and with quotations from the Psalms and, and the prophets. This totality of depravity of our internal natures is reflected in our minds, in our hearts, in our wills, and then our actions, our words, and our relationships. So let's do some dissecting. Verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. Firstly, our minds, there is no one who understands. Intellectually, we suppress the truth, as Paul has said. God has made himself known and yet we shut, we've shut him out of our thinking. We've convinced ourselves that the world revolves around us and, and not revolves around God. How many of us can say that our thinking would be that much different if God didn't exist? How's your thinking? Next, our hearts. It says there is no one who seeks God. Instead of wanting God, our maker and our creator and our God, we, we are seekers of comfort, seekers of promotion, of wealth. We seek pleasure for ourselves. We seek fulfillment. We seek peace. But God is not who we turn to. So let me ask of us, where is our heart tonight? Have you come here seeking God? Are you seeking God or are you thinking about that assignment or that person in front of you or that experience that you're chasing? Next, our wills, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. It's our motivation. Instead of seeking God's will, we've turned away, seeking our own glory. We've, we've taken our eyes off His kingdom come, His will be done. We failed to surrender and turned our backs on God, seeking to do things our own way. So what, made it, what motivates you right now? Can you see, up, up until this point, all of this is internal. Our deep motivations and thoughts and desires are not from God. Our nature is broken. And so Paul digs deeper. Our actions, there is no one who does good, not even one. All our actions are tainted. None of us can say we've done good perfectly all the time with the purest of intentions. And then our words, our words are so full of destruction and not life. It says their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, the mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. The Apostle James, he writes about this in his letter. He says, No human being can tame the tongue. 
It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Are your words speaking life or tearing down? You know, when when we put all these together, we see how righteously we've botched our relationships in the world and in our lives. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. See, humanity should be marked by collaboration and peace and kindness and flourishing, but instead we divide. We hurt, we clash, we extort, we hate. So where is there division in your life, in your heart, in our communities, in this church? See, from the inside out, we are all sick with sin. This is all alike under the power of sin. We stand guilty before God. We have shamed our Creator and our Father. We've brought destruction to His beautiful and perfect world. We've made an idol of created things instead of giving credit to the and credit and love to the one who truly deserves it. See, Paul paints a really different picture to Rousseau and, and our modern sentimentalities. We're not that good. We've got no leg to stand on before a holy and righteous and perfect God. So Paul sums it up all like this. He says, verse 18, There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is it. This is the problem. And it's been laid out all throughout Scripture. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. God deserves awe and reverence and worship, but we treat Him like a genie. We talk to Him like our boyfriend, and we we make Him in our image rather than being His image bearers. And so Paul says there will come a time when every mouth will be silenced. See verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather through the law we become conscious of our sin. We'll be accountable before God. See, what the law did was to expose our sin, but the law could never save us. Never do we ever stand a chance to be perfect and be acceptable in God's holy presence. And yet that's our approach. So often we we use external cures, like the law, to try and remedy an internal sickness. We put up all these rules and think that if I follow them, then I'm good and I deserve my comforts in this life and comforts in the next. We take the balance of good, like I said before, we take the balance of good and bad and think, I've done enough good and therefore deserve heaven. And even as Christians, we fall into this trap where we become res- respectable. We, we don't drink that much. We, we serve on a ministry. We do our Bible reading. We don't swear. We don't sleep around. And then we think we're pretty good and expect God to bless us and be happy with us. You can, can you see as Paul is just shown it's not the externals that make us sick it's what's going on in the inside so we need we need to do this open heart surgery to actually see 
what the sinful nature is before we can actually appreciate what Christ has done for us. So I want to ask you where you at. Some of you have been a part of church your whole life and you've heard a message a thousand times, but really you've been playing the respectable Christian script. All tidy on the outside, but filthy on the inside. Some of you here tonight are wondering why you're feeling complacent, why you're feeling cold in your faith. It could be that we've failed to truly recognize our need and allow God to do the work on the inside to do that open heart surgery and get to the motivations and the hearts and the intentions. But quickly, quickly, our response, is, our response is external. We think we need a new experience. We think we need to fix this habit or put this limit on or, or rule or feel a certain way. But friends, our problem is internal. And what we need is a heart transplant. We need God to do something deep, deep down. And this is when we understand God's love and His mercy and His restoration and His resurrection. This has been His plan. This is His plan through the ages. Let me read to you from the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Ezekiel 36, 26. God says to the people of Israel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Let me take you to Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or to say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Brothers and sisters, we are not righteous. We do not understand. We do not seek God. We have turned away. We do not do good. Our throats are open graves. The way of peace we do not do. There is no fear of God before our eyes. But thanks be to God who loved us still, who loved us, who took this sick and broken nature and exchanged it for his heart, his spirit, his grace, his righteousness, and his restoration. So that we read verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Can you see, friends, God's wrath is justified. And in our nature, we stand under him and his judgment. We're not that good. But thanks be to God that he has given us a new heart. So Paul's going to say later in another letter, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. 
God's wrath is what we deserve. Christ's righteousness is what he's given to us. And the work Christ is doing in us by his Holy Spirit is from the inside out. So I want to invite us as a community in this moment to just come before the Lord with courage, but with vulnerability, with honesty. So we've done this open heart surgery and have our hearts exposed that to say, God, my heart is, is wicked and crooked. In my own nature, I deserve your wrath. But thank you, Lord, that you would, that by your love and grace, you would give me a new heart so that we can love you. We can do good. We can seek God. Thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy to us. I'm going to invite the band up as we're going to close in a minute. But I want to ask you, if you're feeling this beige, bland and dry Christianity and, and tonight, if you're feeling the Holy Spirit convicting you that your heart is not right, that maybe there's parts of you that, that you're resisting God's transformative work from the inside, from the inside. What I want us to do uh, is I want to invite you, if, if you're feeling this way and that, um, you know, we've had and we've diminished God's uh, wrath and we've minimized sin, but actually coming to this realization, we open God's word to say how much we need him. But to this, we need that place before we can come to that deep gratitude. What he has done for us. What he has truly done for us. And so I want to invite you, if that's, if that's you and you're in that place, uh, to kneel with me. Um, I'm, I want to invite you, we're, we're going to just come to this place of confession before the Lord to say that we're, we're not right. Uh, but for all of us to pray this prayer, and, and if you feel like you're in that place and you want to kneel before the Lord, I invite you to join me, and I want to read to you from Psalm 51, as, as Paul quoted. I want to just confess before the Lord and, and, and come to this place of, of honesty as he does this deep work in our hearts that he would come and bring his transformation from the inside and, and that we would have, as we confess our sins, this assurance again, this assurance of his forgiveness and new heart. So let's pray together from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. 
and renew a steadfast spirit within you. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Just come before the Lord in silence and confession and Let's call upon the Holy Spirit to do that deep transformation in us, to restore to us the joy of that truth of salvation, of assurance that we have a new heart, that Christ's blood has been shed and we are forgiven. More than that, Christ is risen in His power and we are, we are a new creation. Let's just sit in, in His presence now.